In Israel, you can take a pilgrimage to this place and the fifth gospel will ignite you into an incredible perspective of scripture that will help you realize that the Bible is truly more than a book. But the mistake a lot of people make is we, we, we lose sight of the fact that world history is God's history. Do not limit God's history to just biblical history. The Bible only contains what it's able to contain. It would be impossible to create a book that would have enough pages and even writers to write on those pages the total history of God. It would be impossible. If you think everything God did is in the pages of this book, well, then you're, be, you're being foolish because there's so much more as a part of God's history. History is God's history. Just as science describes who God is and what's come from God. It would be impossible. So when you go to Turkey or Israel or Egypt or Greece or around the world, you begin to understand and see how God lived through ancient history. And Jesus wasn't just a gift to those who are Jewish in the Israel nation. He was a gift to all mankind. And if we're going to understand what he's saying in this, this area of geography in this text today, we have to understand when Jesus came, he knew he was the savior to the world, not just the Jewish people. So when you walk all of these locations, and I, I know some of you are thinking, well, I'm just not going to go to Israel because pastor asked me to, and I'm just not doing what he said. Well, then you should find a church where you do listen to your pastor. Because I'm telling you, if you open the door to this, you ask anyone in here that went to Israel, and there's uh, people I'm looking at right now, and they would say it was worth every single penny that they spent to go to Israel because it opened up the scriptures like never before. You need to be praying about it. You need to ask the Lord, is this something we should invest in and go? Because when you do, it changes things. So I, I want to talk about a couple of things before I get into. I've tried in every message bring out a little bit of the 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 this idea of of uh, Israel and and parts of its history. I want to talk about Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Most people know about Herod the Great because he was the one that was there when Jesus was born. And a lot of people think we mentioned him at Christmas time, and he killed all the two-year-old babies because he was mad that Jesus got away. Um, we know a lot about Herod because Josephus recorded him. In fact, we know more about Herod than we actually know about Jesus because Josephus, Josephus, a Roman historian, was taken by the accomplishments of Herod. He was he was the one who turned Israel into a trade center, a historical destination. He also made Jewish worship so popular in the Roman Empire that people thought it was cool to worship only one God. There was only one problem. He was not Jewish. Herod the Great was Arab. And his parents were turned to Judaism by sword point and forced to become Jews. He was born in 73 BC in the red, rose red city of the area of Petra. And, and he wanted to be a re real Jew, but the Jews viewed him as being a heathen king. And the Romans loved Herod because he knew how to take a political position and he supported uh, the Roman Empire. In fact, Herod's father was close friends with Caesar Augustus, or Julius, August, Julius Caesar. And, and then Herod himself became close friends with Mark Anthony. 
And so there was a connection between him and the Roman Empire, but the Jews hated Herod because he had killed a number of Jews up in Galilee in order to squelch a rebellion that was taking place, and the Roman Empire protected him. So the Parthenians had come into Jerusalem and in Israel, and they were ruling there, and the Jews loved the Parthenians, but the Romans said, we want Jerusalem back, and they sent Herod in to fight against the Jews, and Herod succeeded and took over Jerusalem and became the Roman king over Jerusalem. But he wanted to be loved by the Jewish people. So he married a girl, a, a Jewish Hasmodean prince, which was the king of the Jews, the, a princess of, of that line in hopes that they would see him as a legitimate king. But they hated him all the more, and his princess hated him all the more. So historically, he's under the pressure, which is an interesting fact. Herod is known as the only man that was able to resist the seductions of Cleopatra. Interesting. At that time, Israel's political power really rested in the religious class of the Temple Mount. And if Herod was going to have any legitimacy, he had to get the, re, the, 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 the people of that time to, to, to honor him, to look to him as that. And he knew that if he was going to have a legacy, there's only two ways you really have a legacy. You either win battles that make you this great king or you build things. And he decided the Roman Empire takes all the battles. I'm going to build. I'm going to have a legacy of building. And build he did. Some of the greatest structures of our day. Today, this is still true with how political power works in Israel. The religious class of, of Israel today really rules in Israel and Jerusalem. In fact, um, it, people in Jerusalem pay, pay taxes so that if a boy wants to study the, study the Torah, and there is a huge percentage of men who study the Torah, they don't get paid for it, but they're, they're taken care of by the government and the taxes of the people in order to do that. And because of that, there has been a rift and a division in Israel between the secular Jews and the religious Jews. The secular Jews saying, we shouldn't have to pay them, they should work jobs. All they do all day long from morning to evening is just study the Torah. Still today. And they hold the power. And in that day, Herod said, if I can in some way do something for this religious class, then they'll give me power. So that's why he remodeled the temple that was 900 years old and crumbling. Herod remodeled the, uh, an Arab remodeled the temple and then built the retaining wall around the temple, which we know as the Temple Mount today. That whole structure that you probably see behind me in order to gain some support uh, from the people. Uh, so, and in addition to the Temple Mount, he created Masada, which when you go there, the, the word that will come out of your mouth is how. Uh, I mean, you stand there and you're just amazed how he engineered this thing. And then he built Caesarea Maritime, which is a harbor that was the first really known cement project underneath water. And, and many people who've studied this, engineers, said that Herod, this was what made Herod uh, the great great, is, is they said this was on the level, this harbor that he built was on the level of the pyramids. And engineering. So Herod the Great, when he got older, became very paranoid. And he started wanting to kill everybody. And even his sons. 
And so his sons were kind of brought into this thing and they were divisive and they split the whole area of Israel into three pieces. And where we're going to go today was an area that is called, was originally called the city of Panias with P, Panias. And it was given to Herod the Great by Caesar, by Mark Anthony because of the war to take the kingdom back from the Parthenians. They gave them Herod the Great, uh, the city of Panias which was an area which they considered to be a very holy site. Now, when you hear holy, you think righteous, right? And in a Christian culture where most of us were brought up in this nation, you, you think of that in a Christian way. But in a pagan culture, they also used the word holy. It was a high ground or a holy ground. They saw that there were portals into the underworld, just as we know there are portals into heaven. If you read the Old Testament, Jacob saw that this was a portal. And he called the place Bethel. Surely this is the house of God. It was a portal. That's what every church wants to be, is a place where people can come and experience God's presence, right? In, in, a, in a way in which all of us come together. So th this area sits at the foothills of Mount Hermon. The locals today call it Banyas. And it was the high, Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. And springs would come out of this mountain. So when you read in Psalms, the springs of Mount Hermon, the springs come out of this mountain. And, and in that day, water was life. Because literally, it's the most valuable commodity there was. It wasn't a plentiful supply in Israel, but on Mount Hermon, there was a plentiful supply of water. And when you go there, it's a very lush area. This Caesarea Philippi is also within four miles of Dan. So it is all the way up in the north. When you're standing right on the side of Mount Hermon, the other side of Mount Hermon is in Lebanon and in Syria. You're literally from this place, only less than 50 miles from Damas Damascus, Syria. So you are way up in the point of Israel. Now, uh, what's interesting is this area was 30 miles north of where Jesus was ministering in Galilee. 30 miles north. So Jesus, we have no other record that Jesus was ever up in this area. And this is around the time when Jesus was getting ready to be crucified. And as they're getting ready to leave to go to Jerusalem, which is a long enough walk already, he says, we're going north. He goes 30 miles to the north to come 30 miles back down to go all the way to Jerusalem. He goes 60 miles out of his way for the conversation he's going to have with his disciples. This place is important. There's a reason he does this. This city would have been known as Sin City of Israel, the city of Panias. Herod built the temple there to the god of Pan. And the god of Pan was, um, it, that's where we get the word panic. When you look at the, the god of Pan, it, there are all kinds of things on the internet. And the moment I say it, it's a very scary and fierce looking god. It would, the god of Pan would freak people out. And, and, and so they would worship this god really kind of being ruled by fear. And it was an idea of a goat and a boy mixed. You had the goat bottom and the human top of a boy. Um, and it really related to some of the practices. How do you get that? Um, I'm going to use the word cross-pollinating, but you can take it from there. Uh, it was taking place on this platform at the foothill of Hermon, in this place we're going to go to today. It would have been known as a goat boy, and this goat boy would have been playing pipes. 
Um, how many Disney lovers do we have? Don't raise your hand because I'm about to tell you something you're not going to like. <laughs> Disney developed a character based on this god. His name was Peter Pan. He wears a green outfit, boy, pointed ears, playing pond pipes, and little pointy shoes. This is exactly why I eat Jif peanut butter. I don't want any goat boy peanut butter on my sandwich. <laughs> uh, some, of you are, some of you are like, you just ruined it for me. I don't care if it's cheaper. I'm not worshiping no goat boy. <laughs> right? So when you look at the natural landscape, there is a massive cliff with a huge cavern at the base of it. And it's this, at this cavern which many believed was the portal into the underworld, they put uh, temples. And um, it was called a grotto because there were many temples that were placed along this cavern. And they would offer sacrifices to the underworld by throwing infants, virgin women into uh, this cavern, which was also a spring. That would feed the city. Many scholars believe that the locals at that time believed this pit was the gateway to Hades. So while today there's some disagreement, there's no question that this place is likely the most pagan location in the land of Israel. So Jesus, before he's crucified, before, before the final days with his disciples, takes them 60 miles walking walking 60 miles because they got a long walk to Jerusalem 60 miles out of their way to go to this most evil sin city place where now that they've excavated it and when you're there you can still see the tiled floors they're crumbled they're broken but you can still see the carving into the cliff face where they would have put their idols and it would have been Zeus was there, Nemesis was there, the, the temple to Augustus was there, the temple to Pan was there, and then they also had the temple of the dancing goats, which is where they get the idea of dancing with the stars. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, I always knew that show was bad. <laughs> this was a high place in Caesarea Philippi. So when the Bible says Jesus went there, Jesus, nowhere, nowhere do we see Jesus ever going into a pagan city. Jesus would not have went into Caesarea Philippi. He would have been, and the Bible says he was in the region of Caesarea Philippi. At no point other than Egypt when he was escaping, when he came back, he never went into a pagan city. So he would have been in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and this grotto would have been high, it was on a high place, so you could have been a distance away, and when you're driving up to it, you can actually see it from a distance away. So it's important to understand that Jesus, that Jesus would go to this place, had, there had to be a reason Jesus was going to this place to reveal what he was about to say. Because he could have done this in a temple. Why not go to a temple and do this? Why not go do this in a synagogue? Why not go to just do it on the, where he did the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, that's a beautiful place. Why not have the discussion there? He actually chooses the most evil city in all of Israel to go to reveal to his disciples who he really is. And there's something else he wanted to do. So go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, it's important that you bring your Bibles to church with you. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, and, and one of the, or one of the prophets. Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So we get this question, this who do you say that I am? And the, there's really two questions. The first question he says is, who do men say that I am? What, what are men saying about me? You know, because Jesus, like common men, Jesus was having an identity crisis. He said, you know what, guys, I woke up one morning uh, a few days ago, and I just said, what have I been living for? You know, I'm doing all of this stuff, and I get all these people that say they love me, but all they want are their miracles. You know, I've kind of gone through an identity crisis. You know, I'm really struggling with understanding who I am, and, and I kind of want to know, what are people saying about me? Now, if you believe that, you really don't understand Jesus. Jesus was not having an identity crisis. Jesus didn't need to know what men were saying about them. Jesus wanted the disciples he was setting them up so where the disciples answered the question so he could then build on it. How many know there are all kinds of religions out there that are, have a definition of who Jesus is? They're telling some believe Jesus was a good teacher. Some believe he was a, a great rabbi. Some believe that he was just a great prophet, some, but, but not the greatest prophet. Some believe that he was actually the brother of Satan, and God chose him over Lucifer, and that's why Lucifer got all angry. And there's all kinds of other things that, that we think they respond, and they said, because when, when, uh, when, when, he, when this was said, when Jesus says, the Son of Man, who did they say that I am the Son of Man? He was saying, I'm the Messiah. That would have been a, mes a Masonic term that he would have been declaring, who did they say me, the Messiah, is? Who? Because they had an idea of what the Messiah might be. And, and the four people they bring up, three names and then, and then a variety uh, the first one they said was John the Baptist. Now, that makes no sense to me. Do you ever stop and say, John the Baptist, like he was living when I was living. Jesus, Jesus had to think like, wow, where did that design flaw come from? Like God has to say sometimes, did I design that? Like, like wasn't John the Baptist with us at one point? Didn't he baptize me? How could I be John the Baptist? Then they say Elijah and then Jeremiah and then some other prophets. In the 1990s, how many were here in the 1990s, right? Just wave at me. A lot of you were. In the 1990s, there was a song that came out that was quite popular by Depeche Mode called My Own Personal Jesus, right? My Own Personal Jesus, right? And it had Jesus in it, so it was a Christian song. <laughs> I mean... The line it had in it was reach out and touch faith. It just made sense. It was like, but, but I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do in our day and age today. 
He's my own personal Jesus, and I get to design him any way I want, like I did my Barbies as a kid. I get to put whatever I want on him. I get to have, he gets to have whatever personality I want to make him. I, I don't know God for who he is. I know God for who I want him to be. This is the way my Jesus is. So he's my, maybe he's John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was a man of zeal. He was blunt. He was a truth-telling prophet. He did zero miracles, but he was great at confronting people. And my own personal Jesus is like John the Baptist. And there's all kinds of Christians that love the John Baptist, John the Baptist version of Jesus. I'm going to tell you, I don't care what it does to you. I'm just tell you the truth, whether that tears you up or tears you out. I don't care much. Or maybe it was Elijah. Elijah, he did powerful miracles and, and things and healings. He was a, that's the supernatural Jesus. Show me the powerful Jesus. Mine's the powerful Jesus. Or maybe he's the Jeremiah Jesus. He's the weeping prophet. Very compassionate, loving, mushy Jesus. The one that has the long, girly hair and just... Everybody has some idea what Jesus is, and, they, and a lot of it is, has been given to us by people. We've been told by people. A lot of it is stuff that we kind of think we want him to be or we want him to believe. But what's interesting is Jesus is not someone that has to be described to you, and that's the only way you know him. He's someone who can be experienced, and you can know him for who he is. Jesus wanted the disciples to recognize that while Jesus was operating with great authority and anointing as these great men did in history, he was very different than all of them. The question is, would they see it? Would they recognize he was the Messiah? Not, not defined by the religious leaders of the day, not a revolutionary and not even a prophet, but he was, he was God. And do you know that there are some people that say that Jesus never said he was God? He never said he was the Son of God. And yet, they don't read the scriptures because he does. John 14, 9, Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, when I'm right here? You say, well, that's not good enough. We'll go to John 10, 30. He says, I and the Father are one. We're the same. And they say, well, they're saying they're like one another. No, 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 no. Because right after he says that, the Pharisees pick up stones, and they're going to stone him, not because he says he's like the Father, but because he said he was the Father. And they say, you blaspheming God because you claim to be God. Jesus said, I am one, I am the essence. So knowing who Jesus is will not be enough to save anyone. It isn't just knowing who men say Jesus is, who I say he is, who scholars say he is, and even the Bible says he is. The question is, is do you know who he really is? He says, do you know who I am? But like, who do you? He says, and the second question he asked, and this is the first altar call in history, right here. It was in this moment that Pastor Chris came on the scene and started playing the music. <laughs> Come, just, so I surrender all, you know. And, and, and Jesus, like Billy Graham, does an altar call. This was the first one. This is the first thing he says. And in every altar call, it's not a prayer that saves you. You can pray all the salvation prayers you want to pray and not get saved you got to answer this question. Who do you 
say I am? Who do, you, do you know who I am? I've been walking with you, and I've been, but, but have you discovered who I am? Do you know I am? It was, was he a man? Was he God? Was he a revolutionary? Was he a rabbi, a teacher? Was he a friend? Or was he the savior of the world, the only hope for connection with God? See, if the only reason you're saved is because you want to go to heaven, you're not saved. Because heaven isn't the goal. Heaven isn't for people who don't want to get out, who, who want to escape hell. This is the greatest lie I think the church and leaders like myself have said for years. I didn't come to Jesus to get to heaven. I came to Jesus to get Jesus. He created heaven as a place for us to be with him. Because I want to be with him. It's about relationship. And when it's about heaven, I don't want relationship on earth because I've sealed my ticket to heaven. I hope this is making sense. Dear God, let this be a revelation and not just knowledge. This has always been about a relationship with the creator of the universe. Never about escaping hell. Never about getting into heaven. It's always about wanting to be with him. And Peter speaks up and he says, you are Christ, the son of the living God. I, I, I see it. I have had a revelation. I know who you are. We thought you were a revolutionary, but something occurred to me. You're Christ, son of the living God. You're my savior. My whole life is different because of you. You are the fulfillment of all prophecy. You are more than a man. You aren't like John the Baptist. We aren't comparing people to or you with people. People are all parts of you. You're the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And why in Caesarea Philippi? Why come... Why not a synagogue in Capernaum? Why sin city? Why do you come here? Jesus brings them to a city that is literally the most demonic city in Israel. Because it wasn't for the religious of Israel, but for the pagans and Gentiles that don't even know about Jesus. See, to the pagans and priests and worshipers to the Greeks and the Romans. Jesus was not on the radar of the Greeks and the Romans. He was not on the radar of the pagan priests and worshipers. They didn't even know who Jesus was. But this place was on God's radar. The worshipers of Pan were on God's radar. See, Israel thought God only loved them, and he's going up there to tell them God loves everybody. See, we don't, God doesn't make men his enemy. We make God our enemy. This is why missions is so important. I was talking to someone that says in the generations coming up, they're more concerned about they're more concerned about reaching people in our communities and serving our communities than we are about the people around the world because we no longer care that people are going into hell around the world. There, you, you just cannot believe this lie. See, when Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi, we think he was there with like this anger of what these people were doing. Jesus wasn't sitting there looking at the people in anger. His heart was breaking that they were under the oppression of the lie they were living. 
And he's saying, look, look at what this is doing to these people. I didn't come to create a religion. I came as a light to kick out darkness. 42% of the world has never heard the name Jesus. Just like this pagan culture. Never knew who Jesus was. Never knew there was an answer out of their death. You say, well, I don't know that God sends everyone to hell. God doesn't send anyone to the lake of fire. You were born going there. You are on the path there. And God is trying to capture people and get them to escape the lake of fire. They're coming. (laughs) They had a flawed view of the Messiah. They felt like they owned the Messiah. And God said, I didn't become a Jewish Messiah. I'm not a Jewish Messiah. I'm a Messiah for mankind. He came for all of us. See, if friend, all of us have been called to be a part of missions. Every single one of us in here. Why? Because I know who he is. And there are people who need to hear. And I need to be a part of it. Jesus came to be the Messiah to the world, the Savior of the world. And and he just doesn't make enemies. If you look at Jesus, Jesus heals the daughter of a Roman centurion, says he hasn't found anyone with such great faith. He eats with tax collectors, even though, and even makes some of them his disciples. He helps a non-Jew in Sidon and Tyre, and then he ministers to the Samaritans. He is a global Messiah. He isn't just a Jew. He isn't just the church. He isn't just for American and Christians. He isn't just for good people, of which there are none. He is the Messiah of the world, and Jesus is telling his disciples, you need to testify the gospel to everyone. So what is that gospel? What is he saying? He takes him up there and he says, I want to make this very clear. This is what the gospel is. And in it, you're going to hear a lie that has been told to generations and generations for thousands of years. And it's so simple. If people would just study the scriptures, they would see it and recognize it's been a lie. Here, let's go in. It's the revelation of the rock. Peter declares the identity of Christ. He says, you are the son of the living Christ. God reveals to Peter who Jesus is. And Peter declares that Jesus is the son of the Messiah. And what is God, Jesus said, it wasn't man that revealed this to you. Jesus says, Peter, this was revealed to you by God. Literally, revelation reveals to us truth that is right in front of us. But man's perspective of things seems to be true, but is riddled with contradictions. But the Holy Spirit will open our eyes to see the truth, which is always beyond what we can imagine. So when when Peter has this revelation, he declared this revelation, Jesus calls him Peter. Jesus calls him Peter. When he has this revelation of who Jesus is, what has happened to him? He has a revelation of who he is. When you get a revelation of who God is, it will always bring a revelation of who you are. We're living in a, in a world now where we go from sermon to sermon, and the popular topic of a lot of sermons is to affirm our God-given identity. We want to hear how, who we are and what God says about us, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying it's pointless. If you pursue your identity with human effort and knowledge, you will always be seeking someone who will be telling you who you are. You will always need someone to affirm you. 
You always need to someone to tell you how great you are and how faithful you are. And, how, and it doesn't even matter if it's true. You just need someone to tell you that because you're looking for people who will feed into you because you think your identity is built by affirmation. But Peter comes to this point and he says, who do you say that I am? And he says, whoa, you are, you are, you are Jesus Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus says, you know what, Peter? The Holy Spirit revealed it to you. Now you're going to get a revelation of who you are. He says, your name is now Peter, the rock. We will never know who we really are until we get a revelation of who God really is. See, when God gives you a revelation of who you are, you don't need people to affirm you. And when you don't need people to affirm you, you don't, you don't, you're not insecure. The problem with the American church today is it's insecure. And why? Because we're, we're pursuing the knowledge of our identity instead of a revelation of who God is. Because if I was pursuing a revelation of who God is, every day I'd be like, good morning, God. I'm here to spend some time with you. I want a revelation of who you are. And when you get a revelation of who you are, everything else falls into place. You don't need people to affirm you because he does that. He, he, see, the fact I'm sitting here and no one said amen to that says it worries me. It worries me in this way that we've abandoned our time with him. Because when you spend time with him, you know what I just said is true. And the amen is testifying to the fact I've done it, I've experienced it, and everyone else in the room can say, I know what he's talking about. I know what he's talking about. The interesting thing in this, and it's interesting because it says there's this question, is Peter the head of the church? This is the great lie. There has been a whole faith built on this lie. Is Peter the head of the church? No. And if you have a relationship with Christ, you would know Christ is the head of the church. He says, I'm the head of the body. Peter's not the head of the body. And I'll get to this scripture here in a moment. This is amazing to me. Like Christ isn't going to share the headship with a human on earth. We're part of the body of Christ. But, but I love to take a historical, I like to take a historical place in this, okay? Because I got nothing against people who are Catholic. I don't got anything. I think there's Catholics that are believers in Christ. That doesn't make Peter the head of the church. Never was. Do you know back in biblical history who the head of the church was? Peter was never the head of the church. Ever. Not at any point was Peter, we think he was the head because he spoke up. Peter was never the head of the church. It was, it was, there was a head of the church. It was Jesus's brother, James. In fact, Peter, there's this big dispute over uh, circumcision and Paul and Peter agree, and there's others who disagree, and they're having this discussion back and forth, and it wasn't decided until James made the declaration. So if there was a head of the church, which there wasn't, it would not never have been Peter. It would have been James. 
But they use this verse completely out of context and not understanding even the geography of the place. And it says that, no, 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 Jesus said, Peter, your name is now Barjona, your name is now Peter, Petra, which means rock. And then he says, and upon this rock, I'll build my church. The problem is, in Greek, it's two different words. When he changes Peter, do you know what Peter means? Little pebble. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's, it's, it's this connotation of little pebble. Peter, little pebble. So if your name is Peter today, hi, little pebble. <laughs> He's such a little pebble. That it literally means little pebble. And if you read it in the Greek, the grammar of the Greek changes the context and says, little pebble, you will be built on the rock, which was what? Not a person, but the revelation that Jesus is Christ, son of the living God. Peter is not the foundation of the church. I mean, think of how absurd that is. He has never been the, the foundation of the church. Jesus has always been the foundation of the church. And the rock was the understanding that he was Christ, son of the living. No, 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 pastor, the resurrection and death was the center of the church. No, 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 no. That gave the credibility to who he was. It's always been about Jesus. And, and, and he's in Caesarea Philippi. Why does he come all the way up here? Because at the there's the rock face, the cavern. You could take the Pope off the picture behind me. <laughs> there's the cavern, and then there's the rock face that you can see there. Okay? And then there's a platform built in rock. And all of these temples are built on that platform. What he points as, and the rock is not a physical rock that this is going to be, the church will be built on. The, they're built on a rock that an earthquake can crack and crumble. But this rock in which the church will be on will never crumble or crack. The rock of me being Christ, son of the living God. Temple row. These temples to the gods were built on the rock in high places in Caesarea Phil. So he is there in the most evil city. He said, All of these religious systems have declared they have the answer for their life, but an earthquake could break down every one of those temples. Now, why is that important? Because what's built on the rock? Temples. What did we talk about at the temple at the Southern Steps and more than a book, Southern Steps? Who's the temple of God? What are you founded on? Christ, son of the living God. He's my head. He's my king. And I am founded upon that rock. And it goes on, he says, the gates of hell. The gates of hell is not talking about an abiding place of the dead. He, in fact, it's not even talking about the lake of fire. He's talking about the gates, not Hades. What, what is the gate to Hades in that city? The temples. It's the temples. So when he says the gates of hell will not prevail against him, what he's saying, what is he saying? He says all of the religious systems will come and go. They won't prevail, but this truth will prevail forever and ever and ever and ever. What happened to the dancing goats? Became a TV show. What happened to the God upon? 
became Peter Pan. What happened to Zeus became a story in some people's storybooks. They're all gone. Christ, son of the living God, is still around. It's still here. It's still in this place. Once you have a revelation of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, religion will no longer be the pursuit of your heart. You will no longer pursue the religious behaviors of that, that Christianity even tries to pull you into. You will worship one true God. By the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, the Father who loves you. Jesus declares that these religious systems will not prevent the truth of who he is from reaching their captives. What he's saying is, you're sitting here with Jesus. Put that rock back up on the slide up there. You're sitting with Jesus, and we're all sitting in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus says, and that gate is going to stop the revelation you just got. Don't be afraid of that gate. Don't be afraid of those people. Don't be afraid of pawn. Like everyone else's, don't be afraid of those things because they will not stand because you're going to bring the light. Religion uses fear of death to control. Jesus will use the promise of life to set them free. The keys, the keys of the kingdom. Matthew 16, 19 says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It actually is this. Whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. So there are three keys. And if, if you go by home, you're sitting at the table and you get those paper and you sign your life away after you sign your life away the realtor all excited because this is that place you're now a homeowner they slide across the table what do they slide across the table you just spend half a million dollars for those keys I mean it's a little piece of metal no that's not what you bought the keys represent something. The keys represent you've just bought a place along with the bank <laughs> that you can say is my, my home. This is where I live. This is where I go as refuge. This is my place where I run to. And he says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. When Jesus died on the cross, he descended in the shield. We know in Peter, it talks about this, Galatians talks, where he went and he took the keys of the kingdom and he brought them back. And he says here, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to give you a home on earth. You don't, you know, we talk about how the new songs don't have good theology. Some of the old songs didn't have good theology. Like when we all get to heaven, what a day every, why are you waiting till you get to heaven for rejoicing? Some of us have worship, we worship like I got to wait to get to heaven to do it. And God's like, I brought heaven here. You don't need to die in order to be set free. How about we all worship him like he's here right now? How about we lift up our voice right now? How about we sing unto the Lord with a voice of triumph right now? Because he's given me the keys today. Some people can use their keys to gain access because once you have the keys, it says you now have the authority to enter that house. Once you have the keys, and if you don't got the keys, you're a thief. But if you got the keys, it says, I have, I've been given the authority. I've been given the right. I've been given permission to come into this house. This is now my abode. And what Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And now you have authority. You have permission. I think when we get to heaven, we're all going to go, what? Oh, no. What was
was I thinking? I can't believe I lived with so little when I could have had so much. That'll be the great regret. Why did I worry so much? What was I thinking? Here he's, he's got his hand out. He's trying to give you the keys to this kingdom. Jesus in this moment go, is literally saying, imagine this. You guys, we've been together three years. See that demonic oppression there? You just got a revelation of who I am. And I want you to be the one to go to those and set the captive free. You know what? Here are the keys that will unlock the door. What were they? Identity. I know who I am. I know who I am. My best friend is the Holy Spirit. I am married to, to Jesus Christ. And God's my father by marriage. Do you know who I am? You just try to mess with me. Second, prayer. We reach up into the kingdom of God and we release on earth because I got the keys to the kingdom. I can lock on, unlock the supernatural and release it on earth. And it's about time the church start doing it because the world's going to hell in a handbasket because we refuse to use our keys to release some power in the lives of people that don't know them yet. And the third key, and there's others, but these are the three the Lord gave me, was kingdom vision. What I really discovered was we need spiritual eyes to see what the kingdom of God is like so that we can bring it to earth. God, remove the scales of my eyes to see where you stand. Here's the question, verse 20. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Here's the question. I actually answered this in my message, and then I had to remove it because I didn't have a question to give you. So, I, so the, the answer really flows into this message well. If it was important that people follow Jesus to be saved, why did Jesus command the disciples not to reveal to anyone this little revelation that they had experienced? You know, what's interesting is... We're in a world that's becoming more pagan. Have you noticed that? Paul brought the gospel to a world that was birthed in paganism. And people, because of the discovery, revelation of who Christ were, was, they literally left paganism and the pleasures of this world behind, where in our world, Christians are struggling to overcome the temptation of paganism. In that world, they abandoned paganism. Why? Because they had a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not meant to be con condemning in any way, shape, or form. I really, if you know me, that's not my heart. But as a pastor, I don't want you following this deception. Everyone in here needs to sit down and say, am I in this thing because I just don't want to go to hell? Because it's the best option of the two I have. So I'm trying to obey all the rules, check all the boxes, because I just don't want to go to hell. Or can you answer that question, who do you say I am? You're the love. 
lover of my soul. You're my savior. You're my only hope. No one loves me like you, Jesus. You're the reason I'm in this. And I will gladly lay down my life for you. Because it's worth it. Can you say that? Can you say that with all of your heart and say, I know without a shadow of a doubt, I want to spend an eternity with Jesus Christ. It's not about heaven or hell. It's not about picking what's better than the other. It's not even about what I got to do and all my behavior on earth and all the things I got to do. I just want to be with you, Jesus. Because I've had a revelation of who you are. Holy Spirit, right now, in the name of Jesus, I pray for every person in this room. Lord God, we can only come to this understanding, this revelation by your Holy Spirit. Right now, I pray, Holy Spirit, you speak clearly in this moment.